So this morning, family, um, I'm excited. And the reason for that is for any of you who have um, had the opportunity to be either in the Sunday morning Sunday school, that happens at 9.30 here on Sundays, um, or the Wednesday evening Bible study, um, and you've sat under the teaching of, of my dad, he's one of the elders at the church here, um, you know that that's a, a special treat. And this morning, he is here to give us the word and share that with us. So, Dad, if you come up, thank you for being here and sharing the word this morning. Good morning, church. I'm not going to start there, but if you've got your Bibles, turn to Philippians 1 with me this morning. We're going to end up there. This morning, I want to share about genealogy in Scripture. In the Old Testament, genealogy was really important to the Jews. They believed they were saved. They were taught that they were saved because they're descended from Abraham. Nothing mattered more. The rest of the world was, the, in the Hebrew, the goyim. But we're not the goyim, we Jews. We're the am. Avraham, Abraham, the people of God, the special people. And we got these genealogies that prove it. You, even today, you ask many Jews, they, can, they might not be able to tell you the whole genealogy from the tribes of Israel to themselves, but they probably at least know what tribe they're descended from. Even Jews that aren't very religious Jews care about those kinds of things. For a Jew, to know your genealogy was the proof that you were saved, that you were in right relationship with God. Now, genealogies were done different ways throughout history. You read some from uh, Chronicles and Samuel and, and um, Ezra and Nehemiah. You'll see in those genealogies they mention men, they mention women, they mention other events. But when you come to New Testament times, genealogy had evolved into a special kind of thing. You only mentioned men. In fact, if you look at, now I got kind of loud there. If you, if you look in the genealogy in Luke, in Luke chapter 3, there's a genealogy of Jesus. And there's nothing but men. It starts with Jesus and works backward to, to Adam. There's nothing but men listed in that entire line. That's how genealogies were done in New Testament times. You only cared about the men. It's interesting, because if, if you were to ask a rabbi today what makes a Jew a Jew, his answer would be, you're a Jew if your mother was a Jew. It's your mother that makes you a Jew. It, it's the female, being descended from a female who is a Jew who makes you a Jew. Interesting, different from the way it was in the time of Christ. Okay, having said that, I'm going to ask for the first slide to be put up. This is Matthew chapter 1. It's a genealogy of Jesus. Matthew's genealogy does not mention just men, like everybody else did in New Testament times. Why? What's he doing? He's not doing the normal thing. He's breaking tradition. Why? I think he's got a point, and a very subtle point. So, I've kind of highlighted in red, and then down at the very bottom there you see some green, the places where he differed from this pattern of just mentioning men in genealogies. And the first time, you see it there in verse 3, then Judah became the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. 
Now, if you're a Jew and you know your Old Testament, the name of Tamar is going to, because it's a woman in the first place, it's going to jump off the page at you. What's he saying? Anybody know the story who Tamar is? I see a hand. A couple of hands. Tamar is Judah's daughter-in-law. See, she'd married his oldest son, and he had died without leaving her a son. Now, according to Jewish law, a woman had to have a descendant. To, she was going, you know, we have Social Security to take care of us in early. I go on Social Security next year. You're all working to pay for me. Thank you. <laughs> a woman needed a son who would take care of her in her old age. If her husband died and she did not have a son, then the law said the brother of that husband had to take her as wife, he had to father a child for her, he had to raise that child, and then when that child got old, he wouldn't do anything for his father. He was supposed to take care of his mother. That was Jewish social security. <laughs> your mother was to, you were to provide for your mother. Well, this oldest son of Judah dies, and Tamar doesn't have a son. So Judah follows the law, and he gives his second oldest son to her as a husband, to father a child for her. And guess what? He dies, and there's still no heir. There's still no son. So now, according to the law, the third son, Judah's third oldest son, should take her as wife and raise a child for her. And Judah says, he doesn't say it in so many words, but you read between the lines in the scripture, and pretty much what it says is, you killed off the first two, I ain't giving you the third. <laughs> You're on your own. So she goes back to her family, and she tries to eke out a living somehow. That's a terrible place for a Jewish woman to be. She's in a society that is only a, a patriarchal society. There's no place for her to fit. While her father's alive, she might be taken care of, but once the, he's gone... She has nowhere to turn. He's abandoned. Judah has abandoned her. And then it gets even worse. Because time goes by and Judah goes off. His wife dies and he's without a wife for a while. And he feels this urged. You know, he needs to express his manliness. And so he, he makes a deal with a friend. He makes an arrangement with a friend. Go, go see if you can arrange to find a prostitute for me. Somehow Tamar finds out about it. And she pretends she dresses up as a prostitute at a shrine. And Judah winds up sleeping with his daughter-in-law and producing twins, Perez and Zorah. Incest. Not, not pretty. See, these Jews, they're counting on these genealogies. This is why I'm special with God, because of all these special people that I'm descended from. Well, guess what? Judah is not so special. He's not so different from the, all the rest of the world. He's involved in an incestual relationship with his own daughter-in-law. He doesn't know it at the time when he commits it, but he finds out afterwards what he did. And he does, to his credit, he does repent. What Matthew is doing in this genealogy, in very subtle ways, for those who knew the Old Testament, He's mentioning names, usually by, by changing the pattern, by mentioning a woman. And somehow, 
this nice, shiny genealogy that makes me so perfect and acceptable to God? Matthew was saying, take a close look. It ain't so shiny. It's not so perfect. Tamar was the first time that he mentioned a woman. He does it again in verse 5. Salmon became the, uh, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Who's Rahab? Anybody remember Rahab? A few more of you remember Rahab, right? She's a prostitute. Where did she live? Jericho. Through her, God saves the people, right? The spies had come in to seek out how they could attack Jericho. What should they do? And it was found out that they were there and they were being hunted. And she hides them. She becomes a hero. One of the more well-known and well-respected people in this genealogy, in the line of the Jews. But what's different about her? She, not, she didn't have the genealogy. She's not a Jew. There are people in this genealogy who are heroes in Israel, but they don't have the genes, Paul. They're not from the right genes. There are people who have the right gene pool, like Judah, and they're involved in incest. And there are people like Rahab who doesn't have the right line, but she's a hero in Judah, in, in Israel. Tamar, Rahab. Oh, I missed one. The very next verse. Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, another woman. Who's Ruth? She's got a whole Bible, in the, a whole book in the Old Testament, right? She's a woman of faith, right? Where you go, I'll go. Where you live, I'll live. She follows her mother-in-law and takes care of her. After the men in the family have died, she provides support for her mother-in-law. But again, she's a hero in Israel, but she doesn't have the right bloodline. She's from Edom. She's from an en- a country that is an enemy of Israel. And yet, she's a hero in Israel. The gene pool, Matthew's very subtle message, the gene pool ain't going to cut it for you people. It isn't enough. You need something else. See, Matthew was called to write a gospel, right? He goes to the people, he brings this gospel message And he's talking to people who honestly believe they're saved already because they're descended from Abraham. If you simply go up to a Jew who who is sure he's saved because he's got the right gene pool, and you tell him he needs Jesus, you know what he's going to say to you? I need Jesus like I need another hole in the head. I'm saved because I'm, I'm from Israel. I'm descended from Abraham. I don't need anybody else. Before you can give the gospel message to somebody, you first have to convince them that they need a Savior. If they don't believe they need a Savior, what do they care about Jesus? What will he ever matter to them? What Matthew is doing in subtle ways here is trying to undermine that trust that they had in the fact that they were descended from Abraham. Look in verse uh, 6 there. David became the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. I love the way he puts it. Who was the wife of Uriah? What's her name? Bathsheba. He could have said, David became the father of Solomon by Bathsheba. But he doesn't say that. 
He says, by the wife of Uriah. See, if he says the, that um, he became the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, then what are you going to think? You're going to remember about David being an adulterer, right? That's what he did. He committed adultery with Bathsheba. But if he says he became the father of Solomon by the, by the husband or the wife, rather, of Uriah, he reminds you of Bathsheba and Uriah. When you remember Bathsheba, you remember David's an adulterer. When you remember Uriah, you remember David's a murderer. He planned for, he planned for Uriah to be killed. Here you are, the king of Israel, one of the heroes, one of the highest of the heroes of the Old Testament. And Matthew reminds his readers, King David was an adulterer. King David was a murderer. And you're counting on the fact that you're descended from him to save you? That's your salvation? How firm a foundation are you standing on? He's trying to shake them up so they'll realize they need a savior. As soon as he finishes this genealogy in the next chapter, he's going to go on and start talking about the Christ. Now he's tried, to, first he builds the foundation. You need a savior. You need a Messiah. Who is that Messiah? It's Jesus, the Christ. You see? There's a reason why the, this genealogy comes first. He's writing to the Jews especially, to those descended from Abraham. In verse 11, he talks about Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. He reminds them... Now, it's not an individual this time. It's not just a woman, but he's introduced this event, the deportation. It was exile. Beforehand, he's talked about individual failures. David failed, right? Uh, Judah failed. He talks about two heroes, Rahab and Ruth, who were heroes, heroines, women, but don't have the right bloodline. And now he reminds them, guess what? God has, was so happy with all you Jews that what did he do? He sent you all into exile, into Babylon. And you're counting on the fact that you're descended from these people for your salvation? You don't have much of a foundation. He says it in a subtle way, right? He doesn't come right out and get in your face and say, you think you're a Jew, that's something? That's nothing. You're dead. He could do that. But, but if someone came up to you and tried to witness to you that way, how much time would you give them? Right? See, he challenges their hearts. He says it in a real subtle way. You think you're something because of Jew, but take a close look. And the hope is that somebody will hear the message. That somebody will recognize, yeah, maybe he's got a point. Maybe the fact that I'm descended from Abraham, maybe I need more than that. I'm sure there were hearers, some who knew the, you know, there were some among the Pharisees. We read it, and we just read a bunch of names, right? I'm sure that there were some among the Pharisees who read this, understood what Matthew was really trying to do, and wanted to kill him for it. They hated the fact that he made a mockery of their genealogies. The last verse, he kind of sums it up. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. 
the high hero, David, who he just pointed out to be an adulterer and a murderer. And from David to the deportation. And oh, by the way, the entire nation of Israel failed and is under condemnation by God. And there were 14 generations in between there. And then the last one. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ. 14 generations. The Christ. An insult to those who believed they were saved because they were descended from Abraham. Christ, you know, we, we, nowadays we think about it as a name. Jesus is his first name. Christ is his last name. It didn't start out that way, right? Christ is a Greek word from creo. It means to anoint, the anointed one. In Hebrew, that verb is siach, Messiah comes from that. The Messiah, the anointed one, the one appointed to do God's work, the special envoy sent with a particular job to do. I want to shift gears for a moment. I want to talk to you about my own salvation. It's more than 41 years ago. I was 23 years old when I came to the Lord. I was a student studying math at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. And I met some friends who were believers. And, you know, I grew up as a Catholic. I grew up in the Catholic Church. I went to the church because my mom and dad said go to the church, so I was an obedient son, and I went. I went to parochial school. And I remember the priest. I remember having to go to confession. And it was the hardest thing because this particular priest that was at the parish where we went at the time, he was hard. And he would just beat on you. And as a little kid, man, it ripped my heart apart. It was so hard for me to have to deal with confession week after week, going there. And it hardened me in the faith. And so when I reached the point where I'm coming to the Lord and I'm being exposed to the scriptures for the first time and I'm wanting to respond, here's Satan sitting on my shoulder. And you know the message he's telling me? He's saying, you're not running to God. Who are you kidding? You're running away from Catholicism. That's what you're doing. You're just running away from all those bad memories that you got as a kid. All those times that you went to deal every Saturday, dealing with that confessional again. And I really wanted to know the Lord. And I was, I was in torment, an emotional torment for a long time. And finally I reached a point where I said to myself, all right, I'm not going to run away from anything. I'm going to face up. I'm going to go to confession. I'm going to go. I lived on Maryland Avenue, and I can still remember it today. I had a dream one time. Once I made up my mind I was going to go to confession, I was going to go deal with the Catholic Church before I came to Christ, I had a dream one night, and in my dream, I was walking through this, like, cathedral, right? Huge ceilings and walls, and I'm the only one in the place. And I'm walking, now this is, it's like a sidewalk. It's so huge inside this place. And I can hear my footsteps echoing on the ground because there's no other sounds in the place. And nobody's forcing me. I'm walking down this, this long aisle. And at the end is a chamber where I'll be executed. Nobody's forcing me to go. I'm making myself go. I can't explain to you. Still, when I think about it now, I still get all tightened up inside. That Saturday came, and I went to church. I walked down Maryland Avenue. I remember walking there. And it's a big, wide sidewalk, and it reminded me of my dream. 
And I'm going to confession. I'm going to my execution. And I got to the church and I went inside. And the Catholic Church, you know, when I was a child, when you went to confession, you went into the confessionals. You know, you know what I'm talking about? Anybody from a Catholic background? Yeah. So you know what confessionals are, are about, right? Priest sits in the middle and there's like a side, on either side, there's a place. And so then you went in and you made your confession. Well, the church had, this is 1978. Yeah, February of 1978. The church had just changed the laws so that now you didn't have to use a confessional. If you wanted, you could sit in a chair and face the priest and do your confession. I walked into the church, and I see the, there's a confessional, and there's the chairs out there with the priest sitting. And I thought to myself, what the heck? If I'm going to do this, why hide in the confessional? I'll just talk to the man. I'll sit in the chair, and I'll talk to the man. And so that's what I did. I went in. I went to the chair. When my turn came, I sat there, and the priest never once looked at me. He sat there in his chair like this. I'm over there. He, he did what the church said he had to do. He had to sit in the chair and be willing to talk to me that way. But he didn't have to look at me. And he refused to even acknowledge me. I mean, he heard me. He listened to me. He talked to me. But he wouldn't look at me. And I did my confession. And this man started talking to me as though I were a five-year-old child. He just degraded me for this. It was like being back in that confessional when I was a kid again, listening to that priest rag on me because of what a sinner I was. And as I'm sitting there listening to him, the Spirit of God spoke into my heart. And the Holy Spirit said to me, he said, Ed, you're not running away from anything. You are running into the arms of a God who loves you. Leave the past in the past. And come into the new light. Come into the freedom that I want to offer you. I'm so thankful to God that I faced up and dealt with that in the beginning. Because now 41 years later, I have never once gone back and wished and, and, and never had another thought that I'm not good enough. I haven't faced up. I'm just running away. I'm not running away from anything. I'm running into the arms of a God who loves me and cares about me. I tell you, when I walked out of that confessional and man made my decision that I was going to follow the Christ, my feet did not touch the ground for the next two or three months. I was just, hallelujah, people that knew me, Either, either they were believers and they were so happy, so encouraged to see a new believer, so excited, or they weren't believers and they couldn't stand me. They couldn't get away from me fast enough. It's this Jesus guy, get him out of my face. Oh, I was just so excited. I just, I was living in the kingdom of heaven. And it was a glorious, glorious time in my life. But you know what happens is the time went by. And little by little, all that newness wore off. It got to be just another day with Jesus. And I start to see myself again, that old person, that sinner. I'm saved now, but I still, I mean, I can still get tempted by the world. I can still be pulled down. It's like I'm saved in Christ, but I'm still, I'm not perfect. Can I have the next slide, please? This is from Hebrews 10. 
It's one verse, but I divide it into two parts, A and B. By a single offering, the, the sacrifice of Christ, when he sacrificed himself, by a single offering, he has perfected for all times. That's me. I've been made perfect forever by what Jesus has done. I rest in that place. But look how he finishes the verse. It's those who are being sanctified. I'm already perfect on the one hand, but on the other hand, I'm still a work in progress. I'm still being sanctified. Both are true. They seem like a contradiction, right? I've got to be one or the other. But the writer here says, no, you're both. You're already perfect, and you're still a work in progress. You're still being made holy. And little by little over these past 41 years, I wish I could tell you it's all been uphill, you know. But ask my kids, ask my son. He can tell you. He knows some of the places where I failed. Ask my wife. She can tell you. Ask anybody who knows me more than cursorily, and they can tell you. But I'm still perfect in Christ. And I hold on to that. That's my hope. I won't be here. I won't be struggling in this body forever. And I know the end. I'm already perfect in Christ, and I'm still being sanctified day by day. The writer to Hebrews isn't the only one. Give me the next slide, please. This is 1 John. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And that's what we are. We are children of God, secure in that relationship with the Father. The reason why the world doesn't know us is that it didn't know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. See, it's not done yet. It's still a work in progress. But we know that when he appears, we'll be like him because we'll see him as he is. When he comes, I'm going to be perfect in every way, just like he is. And then the verse 3, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself. It's ongoing. It's happening right now. I'm already perfect. I'm a son of God. I'm a child of God. And yet, I need to be involved in the work in the act of purifying myself. It has to somehow work out in my life. Both are true. The next slide, please. I put normal Christian life in quotes because I don't know what's normal anymore than anybody else does. <laughs> but I think this is an experience that, that's common to all of us if we're honest with ourselves. You know, it's kind of like I stand right here, right in the middle on this blue line. I got one foot in the kingdom of God. I'm perfect. Christ has saved me. Nothing more needs to be done for me to be his child. And I got one foot in the kingdom of this world. And I still struggle with sin. I still struggle with the temptations. I still struggle with the call that God has placed on my life to be the man he wants me to be, to become all that he intended when he created me. He has invested in me gifts and abilities. And I need to use them. I need to be working out my salvation. I need to be becoming Holy, that process is continuing. And at the same time, I need to be resting 
you know, Jake preached a few works about, about being entering into the rest, right? When you enter into the kingdom, you rest. This is a place of security, and you're okay, you're good. You don't want to be too much over here. Because when, when you're still in the world and you're too much in the kingdom of God, you ever heard the expression, he's so heavenly minded, he's no earthly good? Yeah. That's where you wind up. <laughs> you're no good to anybody if you're living over here. On the other hand, you don't want to live over here because then you don't want to be fretting about your own salvation and questioning whether or not you're acceptable to God. Neither place is good. You've got you to gotta balance it somehow. You need to hold on to that. You need to hold on to your security in Christ and still know there's a job for me to do. There's something that God wants me to do to further his kingdom in this world. The kingdom of God has come, Jesus said, when he came. But it hasn't come fully. This world is still lays, makes its claims on us, right? We live in between. Can you go back to that first slide? Matthew is a disciple. He's followed the Lord. He's a believer. He knows he's secure in the Christ. And his call is to write this gospel. And can you see him knowing he's, and listening to the Spirit, leading him and guiding him? He's got to write to the Jews. He's got to be the Savior. He's got to write this gospel for the Jews to follow. And the Spirit leads him and guides him. He's secure, he's resting in the kingdom, he's safe, but he's been called on by God to do something, to act in the world, to write this gospel, to bring the message of salvation. And as he listens to the Spirit in a very subtle way, God leads him to challenge his fellow Jews so that he can bring them and introduce them to the Christ, the Messiah. That's what God's doing in you people, one way or another. Maybe you're not going to be a gospel writer. I can tell you for sure you're not going to be gospel writers. <laughs> but you are called to witness to your people, to the ones God's pointed out for you. For me, the call of Christ means I need to be a good husband to my wife. It means I need to be a good father to my children. It means I need to be a good minister among this congregation where I'm an elder and a, and a teacher. And it means I owe a debt of explaining salvation to the world that will hear me. My faith has to live itself out in this world while I rest in the security of knowing that I belong to the Father and he belongs to me. Okay, can we go to the last slide again? And here's where, if you've got your Bibles, Philippians 1. I'm going to start at the end of verse 18. Paul's talking to the Philippians, and he's, he's just giving them a list of all the things he's had to suffer as, an, as a minister to them. And he says, yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ. To live is Christ in the kingdom of this world, serving the world, doing what Christ wants done in the world. 
And to die, he says, to die is gain. To die is to finally enter into that place, to be in, in heaven with my God. There's both of them there. There's both sides of this normal Christian life in that tension. Verse 22, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. Verse 23, I am hard-pressed between the two. You see what he's saying? I know he sees these two worlds. He sees the kingdom of this world and the work and the suffering that he's called to go through. And he sees the kingdom and he says, man, I wish I could die. I wish I could be in heaven with God and be done with this body and with this struggle that goes on inside of me. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. Give me my choice. I pick heaven. Thank you. Bye. <laughs> Over. Done. For that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. See, I still have something to do. I still need to be a husband to my wife. I still need to be a father to my children. I still need to be ministering in this church because this is where God has put me. He's called me to be. You have a place in Christ. You are secure in your salvation. Nothing can shake that and change it. But you have roles to play in this world. Different hats to wear. Some of you are married. You have a spouse that you need to love and cherish. Some of you are, are parents. You have children that you need to guide and to love and to bring them into full knowledge of who Christ is. You're members of this church. We owe each other that debt, that debt of love, right? To minister to one another's needs. That's where we are. We're still in this world. We won't always be. I know the promise, and it's coming. That day is coming. So we got to be where we are. Where are you this morning? Are you sure in your relationship with the Lord? You need to be. You need that foundation. You need that security. You need to be whole in Christ. You need to know that you belong to the kingdom of God. Here on this side of the line. And at the same time, you've got a role to play. You've got a life to live. You have a purpose that God has invested in you, his Holy Spirit, to do whatever it is he's called you to do. For me, I know what, who I am in Christ, and I know what I need to do. Who are you in Christ? What should you be doing? Are you doing it? If not, then get on board, people. Shape up. Be what God wants you to be. His spirit is living in you to accomplish it. It's not too hard. It's not beyond you. He hasn't asked you to go up in heaven and bring down God from the heavens. He hasn't asked you to descend into the depths and bring up. I'm just telling you to be who you are. Be, you know, you don't have to talk to a bird and try to convince him to fly. A bird flies because he's a bird. You don't have to argue with a fish. You ought to be swimming more than you swim. He swims because he's a fish. And if we're living the normal Christian life, 
then we need to be secure in our relationship with the Father, knowing our destiny. And at the same time, working out our salvation day by day, doing what God wants us to do. It's a tension. It's tough sometimes. But both are true. We live in the middle. Ed, I'm going to come up and, and close, and the music team can come up. We'll be here after the service. If we can pray with you, it would be our privilege yeah. to do so. Let's pray together, family, as the worship team comes. Jesus, Messiah, thank you for coming and being the sacrifice. I thank you for taking upon all of our imperfections. So what is left in us is your perfection. And we thank you for the deposit of your Holy Spirit within us to navigate the kingdom of this world with the power of the kingdom of God. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would increase our awareness of who we are and of your presence with us everywhere that we go. May our hearts stay soft because of your presence in us. And may our convictions stay strong everywhere that we, we uh, travel in this place, Lord. I pray that you would help us to navigate well, to live in this tension well of living in the kingdom of God and living in the kingdom of this world. And as we do so, may we bring honor to your name in every way. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.